five, four, three, two, one. Here we are again in another aspect. This time it's a theological look at the film. And this is just a jumping off spot because in the time allotted, two hours of the images and sounds about to present themselves in front of you, it's, it's two hours is inadequate to express the fullness of what would need to be expressed in this story. Here to help me are uh, three very skilled theologians. Father William Fulco, who's a biblical scholar and Professor of Antiquity at Loyola Marymount. He also single-handedly translated my script into uh, Latin and Aramaic. Hi there. Father John Bartunic, a theologian, a scholar, and priest of note. And I'm a member of the Legionaries of Christ, and I wrote Inside the Passion together with Mel, kind of an inside look at the spiritual and artistic uh, background of the film. And uh, Gerald Matatex has some very interesting observations uh, theologically to impart. Hi. So, um, without further ado, I guess we'll just, hey, start at the start and see what happens. You know, that full moon is very interesting because originally the effect was a, a half moon, and then Mel decided to switch it. That's right. That's right. I've forgotten that. And you know, of course, that actually, historically, it was a full moon, right? The Passover yes. was marked by the first full moon in spring. So it really was a full moon when our Lord was there. I mean, even here, this isn't. This is a, a real man. You're seeing Jesus. You're seeing him from behind. You know, he's struggling. He's kind of, and that was very. I thought it was really important for the the power of the message of the film. Jim uh, Caviezel makes an extraordinary use of his hands. You notice that there his hand was curving, and in the various crucifixion scenes, his hands are almost tell a story independently of his uh, of his voice. Yeah, well, you know, art historically, the most expressive parts of the body are the hand and the, and the face, and they really make use of them here. I love this scene because you know, there's his right-hand men, his apostles, and they're asleep when he needs them. You know, and it shows how, you know, how weak we are as human beings. Peter, James, and John, the three who accompanied him most closely. And with Peter and John, uh, their variations of emotional reactions all throughout the narration of the film, they're different from one another, and you get the full spectrum of human reactions to, to the big question of who do you say that I am? That's an important theme. You know, it's almost as if you can, thought you can summarize the film as saying a series of personal encounters with Jesus Christ. Yeah, th throughout, Jesus constantly has, with every key player, an eye contact. As exactly. if to say, who do you say that I am? And you see with each one of these people some sort of reaction. Yeah. Almost sometimes, you know, as, as he's trying to draw them in. He's trying to, to invite them to believe in him, to trust in him. To my mind, the most striking one that we'll see later on is when he has eye contact with Barabbas. Mm. The personality just changes instantly. Mm -hmm. I thought this was interesting. Peter looks up at the moon, and then there's a tr transitional shot of the moon, and then it cuts to Caiaphas. Mm. And there's this, there's this parallel in scripture between Caiaphas and Caiaphas, and there's, he's almost the replacement. It's the That's new right. covenant. Absolutely. You know. They both mean rock, right? right? Yeah, they both come from the same root. Yeah. Here Caiaphas is using covenantal language to talk about the, the agreement between me and you, he says. And yet they don't want to, at the same time, they don't want to directly hand off the, the coins. One of the things that strikes me about the way that 
Judas is portrayed in the film. Because, you know, we don't know too much about him from, from the Bible. But in the film, he's portrayed as someone who you can really, I mean, in a strange way, you can kind of identify with. You know, he's not purely evil. Even now, he seems kind of anxious. You know, he's, he's, he's a torn person. And Much more human. Some of the recent portrayals of, uh, of Judas in films, he is the uh, great hero, and Jesus is somewhat in the background. Is it? Judas is the one who really knows what's going on in society, and, yeah. uh, and Jesus becomes marginal. To love how those silver coins kind of glint, and yet they're kind of so cold, you know, and see how he's falling into temptation and what he can get out of it. The garden where this is happening, of course, Gethsemane means oil press. The oil is from the olive trees that grow there, and the olive tree is a symbol of Israel in the scriptures, both in the old and in the new. Um, and, and our Lord is sort of the quintessential Israelite here. So he's going into the olive press, you might say. Uh, he is being squeezed. He's being crushed. There's crushed a crushing the earth, yeah. there. So that the oil, which is, of course, a symbol of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, can come forth from this suffering of Christ. The, 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 the gift of the Spirit can come and, and bring the gift of new life. Something that hasn't been noticed uh, by some of the commentators is that Jesus is praying the Psalms here in Hebrew. They're all traditional uh, prayers from the, from the Hebrew tradition. They call, you know, they call the, uh, the Psalms the fifth gospel. Because the, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us what happened. But they don't tell us a whole lot about what's going on inside of Christ in his heart during his life, especially during his passion. Whereas the Psalms traditionally are a clue. They unlock his heart. So it was a brilliant idea to have him praying, and especially praying in Hebrew. Yes. The Psalms uh, incidentally uh, echo throughout the film where deliberately choose vocabulary that's from the Psalms and, and uh, that was a brilliant decision because it sh sheds light it, it gives continuity of the whole history of salvation I think and the, yeah, the continuity you know comes in here we're in the garden of, of Gethsemane which is the reversal of the big mistake that happened in the garden of Eden you know, when Adam and Eve fell into temptation there's the devil, right? When the devil engaged in conversation, and they engaged, and they fell. St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, 14, that the devil can appear as an angel of light. In other words, he's seeming to be the voice of reason. And, you know, you don't really want to do this. Is this really necessary? That's the temptation here. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the same thing back in the garden, as you mentioned in Genesis 3, the devil's saying to Adam and Eve, you know, you don't have to deprive yourself of anything. You can be like God. You can have wisdom. You can have immortality. In other words, the path to glory doesn't have to go by way of suffering. And that's what our Lord is, the new Adam, which Paul explicitly calls him in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. He's having to succeed where the first Adam failed the test. And they're both in a garden, as you say, to show the, the parallel between the two. This is interesting that just as he's making this complete abandonment of himself to the Father, let your will be done, there's a kind of dark night of the soul, the, the dark clouds obscure the moon. Yeah, that's his answer, yeah. Yeah. And he feels abandoned. You can identify with him because there are moments in life when we feel like that. We ask for help and we don't see God's presence. And he's gone through it. He's been there. You know? That look is... Uh, yeah. Manebach, who is your father? You wonder at this, I, I always have too, at this uh, figure of uh, how much does the satanic figure know? Right. The satanic figure also does not know quite who Jesus is. 
doesn't understand completely the plan. No, is threatened by it and tries to overcome it, but doesn't really understand. And of course, that maggot that you see crawl out of the um, nostril is not only a preparation for what you're going to see now, the larger serpentine form, the snake crawling out from beneath the devil's robes, but the maggot shows up later on, of course, uh, when we get to the scene of Judas's uh, suicide. Note the motion of the snake, because later on it's going to be very significant when we see Mary Magdalene's motion toward Jesus. Mm. So note the snake creeping yeah. towards Jesus. It's, it's going to end up being the, uh, the inverse picture. Well, the snake, of course, is another kind of representation of evil in the Bible, trying to penetrate Jesus' world there, you know, trying to get into him, just like the devil's trying to get into his heart and tempt him. And, and again, Jesus, it's hard for him, but he resists. Genesis 3.15 has the words of God to the serpent. The church fathers call the Proto-Evangelium the first announcement of the gospel, the first yeah. prophecy of the redemption where he says, I'm going to put enmity or hostility, a state of warfare between you, the serpent, the, the devil ultimately, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Uh, and, and then there's... You're weighing late for the heel. Right, yeah. yeah. And, and again, there's a little debate in biblical studies about whether she it's, will crush or he will crush. Or him, yes. But, but in a sense, they work together. That's, I think that's the point. Jesus and Mary are working as the new Adam, the new Eve, to bring about the defeat of the devil. And so when the serpent is crushed there, you're giving the audience a visual clue. This is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. That redemption that was predicted there is now set in motion. I think it also points out that the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament, is completely and utterly fulfilled by the new. Sure. And that all that went before it leads up to this. Sure. This question that Jesus asks in this context, who are you looking for, of course, becomes a... A uh, question that's asked to the viewer of the film, to the reader of the gospel. Hmm. Who do you say that I am? Who are you seeking? There are throughout the gospel these sort of invitational moments where you're called to make a commitment one way or the other. Christ seems to have left very few people on the fence. Now look at the, the apostles are looking at him with hate, with anger. Look at Peter. What are you doing? You're going to betray our master? And, and then, of course, the great irony of it, that Peter ends up betraying his Yeah, master. as well, as well. James. The guard's wondering how it's going to come out. But look at how Jesus isn't looking angry. Isn't that the contrast of the way he's looking at Judas? And we have the beginning of the eye contact with Jesus and everyone else. Uh, yeah, the first one, right. And it's a kiss that betrays Jesus. The irony of it. He's not angry. He's not resentful. He's sad. It's the first glimpse of Christ's mercy. And this is an interesting uh, kind of detail, you know, in this scene during the fight, they actually all end up on the ground, you know, during the fight, which is, the Bible says, when they came to ask who he was, you know, and he said, I am he. They were thrown back. Yeah. That's right. But that wasn't on purpose. It just kind of happened the way they choreographed it. It wasn't... Yeah. 
And Jesus is so calm in the midst of all this, uh, this chaos and this violence. Now, I have always found this incident in the Gospels, um, I mean, I've been teaching scriptures for over a quarter of a century, endlessly fascinating, and I'm sure we still haven't plumbed the depth of this yet, that, that the, the high priest's servant, we're told in the Gospel, that's who that man was. We yes. just know him as Malchus here, has his ear cut off by Peter. In other words, the, the confrontation between our Lord and Caiaphas is kind of represented by their, their deputies, you might say, Peter as Christ's. Uh, representative or deputy, and then this man as the high priest's servant. The high priest had to have, of course, he was consecrated in the Old Testament. His ear had to be consecrated with blood, and uh, and if someone was defective in that, uh, they, they could not function as a priest in the temple if they had any defect of their ears or their thumbs or their, their big toes. And so our Lord is, in a sense, giving a little reprieve here, because in other words, in this man's losing of his ear, there's the church fathers saw a kind of symbolic disqualification of the high priesthood, but our Lord puts it back out of compassion for the man as well. But he's, he's giving the old covenant a little extra lease on life, a grace period, you might say, to, to see if they'll still have a chance to recognize them as their Messiah and, wow. and, and, and embrace him. Well, there's something I didn't know. I wouldn't want to, uh, to push too much the discontinuity and yet continuity between the Old and the New Testaments. And I think this ambiguity is very clear in the whole entire Passion narrative. Oh, sure. It's both. It's both continuous and discontinuous, sure. No, I totally agree. I mean, Jesus, our Lord said, don't think I've come to destroy the law of the prophets. I haven't come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. That was the exactly. opening statement in his Matthew 5, 17, 18 on the Sermon on the Mount. But the fulfillment, in other words, you know, takes it to a higher level, and you have to be taken to that higher level. If to remain at the lower level is to fail to fulfill, you know, the deepest aspirations of the old covenant, to truly realize it and and, and embrace it. <laughs> This is great. The moment that, that our Lord is struck, Mary sits up, you know, is just awakened from a sound sleep, just showing again this, this kind of bond, um, between, bond them. between them. Yeah. yeah. No, I, wanted, I specifically wanted the, the experience of the passion to be shared, as it would be by any mother. Mm. But this is more than a mother. This is a wonderful uh, bit of continuity also. Why is this night different from every other night of tying together the... Uh, the Paschal Mystery with the Seder yes. service. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. And there's a kind of inversion because in the Seder service, the younger child asks the oldest child, and here you have um, the Gospels until so relative ages, but here Mary Magdalene is definitely younger than, yes. than Mary, the mother of Jesus, and, and they reverse the, the dialogue yes. there to show again there's kind of an inversion that the mm -hmm. New Covenant takes the old and, and, and yes. flips was, the page, you might say. That was Maya's idea. In fact, and I was like, that's a great idea. Because, you know, as I say, the Old Testament and the New Testament is fulfilled by the New Testament, so. And in fact, those words, why is this night different from the other, referring back to the first Passover, of course, have a double entendre. They refer yes. to why is this night different? Because here, Christ, our Passover lamb, is being sacrificed for us. That's what yes. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 8. And, yeah, right. and we, see, we see the fulfillment of the, of the first Passover unfolding before our very eyes here. 
-hmm. It's also very much the theology of the book of Deuteronomy, which is carried into the New Testament, is that salvation history is not repeated or doesn't go through phases. It is constantly pulled forward so that when you have anamnesis, for example, in the Christian liturgy, it's not repeating something in the past. It is pulling the paschal event to operate now in the present time. Sure. So it's always this night, this night. It is not your children who, have, who will see or your parents who did see. It is, it is we who do see right now. Yeah. new experience. Mm -hmm. wow. So time is like a spiral. It's not like the Greeks thought where it's an endless cycle going around and around like a merry-go-round or a Ferris wheel. It's, it's always going forward. There's recurring cycles, but it's always taking you yes. mm -hmm. forward in time. So anamnesis, as we talk about in the liturgy, is not just remembering the past, it's making the past effective for us. Just as now seeing the passion is not as a past event, it's an ongoing event of passion and resurrection. So now we're back in yes. the guards, the temple guards are gathering the witnesses, right, for the trial. Judas can never really escape the significance, the consequences of what he's done. I mean, he's already guilty, and he already almost wants to, he's sorry. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't, as Peter does later on, ask forgiveness for the betrayal. Or he doesn't make the chance for himself. Does it strike you as funny that Judas is watching all this unfold? It is strange. What is so marvelous is his changing facial expressions of the torment that, that's going through him. He's right. trying to undo something that he knows he can't undo at this right. stage. He can't, he, can't do, he can't undo it. Once again, the die is cast. And well, in fact, the Gospels say Satan had entered his heart by this point. Yeah. John tells us that. Exactly. Because now he's trying to undo it kind of on his own efforts, when what he really needed to do was just humbly admit his fault to Christ. And, and to give the money back is trivial compared yeah, to... Yeah, it's not, it's not the point. These trials were at night. Many people have said, no, they wouldn't have been at night. It was against the law. Well, yeah, it was against the law, and it was a deliberate attempt to be furtive and uh, kangaroo court stuff. And there were actually two trials. The first one at the house of Anas, and then he was brought to the courtyard of Caiaphas. Uh -huh. And uh, for the sake of brevity, you know, I, I've kind of combined the both trials into one. Yeah. I never understood that argument that, oh, the New Testament isn't telling the truth here or this movie is because uh, there was a law against it happening at night. Well, the reality of a fallen world is people do break laws. <laughs> That's what this movie is all about. Yeah. Well, and it's certainly reflected in the argument amongst the elders themselves is that this is a kangaroo court. Yeah. Yeah. And the Gospels themselves indicate, too, they, they, they hint at the fact that uh, Nicodemus, perhaps, and Joseph of Arimathea, you know, were not totally on board with what was going on. They, they weren't maybe courageous enough to totally stand w with Christ, but they, uh, they certainly, they were closet Christians, at least at this point. Yeah. And of course, there's a heavy symbolic meaning of, uh, and it was night, mm -hmm. meaning not just a, a physical night, but it's a moral night, an inversion mm -hmm. of, uh, of the way things should be. Mm -hmm. 
especially because in John's Gospel where he makes that statement when Judas went out and it was night, John's Gospel is all about the theme of light, Christ saying, I am the light of the world. And that you see that in the prologue, you're saying John's Gospel that you hear after, at the end of every traditional Latin Mass very, over and over again. And very long in John's first letter. Yeah. I guess this is the first flashback of the film coming up here. And I thought these were great because one of the silliest, again, objections I've heard to the film is that it doesn't give you the context of our Lord's life. But I think you do that with these flashbacks. In other words, you don't have to start the movie with his baptism, or with his earthly ministry. You can start it with the pa This movie is called The Passion. Sure. And, I, and after all, one of the most significant things about the Incarnation is that we are able to identify our lives with Jesus's life so that uh, our own suffering is now changed because of the passion and resurrection of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And if we can't identify with somebody, it makes it very difficult spiritually to fathom the richness of that. And it seems to me in a flashback like this, just to see the humanity of the incarnation is extremely important on, on a, the level of spirituality. No, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I, I, for a very specific reason, this is here because you get to see something of their humanness, their relationship just in normal times, mm -hmm. and you get to know them a little bit with a scene that's, you know, just kind of hanging out, mm -hmm. working, a couple of jokes, um, mm -hmm. as they would have had a sense of humor and enjoyed one another. Sure. And uh, it's conceivable that this kind of thing did happen. And many people point out that this is very much of a woman's movie, uh, yeah. what it does for for the role of women. Traditionally in, uh, in New Eastern thought, and certainly in the uh, Hebrew Bible, the women are the ones who proclaim the meaning of events. Mm -hmm. And that's very strong in this film. The women are cons consistently there to interpret for the audience to... Uh, oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's the women are the really compassionate ones here, as they are in life, you know? Yes. And, of yeah. course, of all the movies about Jesus, this is the most Marian, the one that most connects Absolutely. Mary to Jesus. And so that, that femininity is there as a filter that the whole movie is shot through. Mm -hmm. And that, and that takes you back to Genesis 3.15, too, because God said, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. In other words, all of human history is being proclaimed by God in Genesis 3 as at some transcendent level, this conflict between Satan and the one who would be called to be the mother of God. And that sort of hostility between them or that parallel between them, that opposition between them, is played out very visually in some scenes coming up. Yeah, later on. Quite a few uh, spokespeople for uh, the various Christian denominations commented that although they had never really appreciated the role of Mary uh, in redemption, that this film caused them to take a brand new look at it mm. and to develop a, a new appreciation for marriage they didn't have before. And I think it's one of the most important achievements of this movie, and I say that as someone who was a Protestant minister who converted to Catholicism later. This is an interesting parallel earlier, too, with, you know, how, how Mary awakes out of sleep and sits up suddenly. Mm -hmm. So, again, this connects, as Father was saying, the women of the movie. Now, Cla Claudia, again, a closet Christian, Pontius Pilate's wife, sits up as well. She's been having this nightmare that the scriptures tell us was troubling her. And she's going to tell her husband not to have anything to do with uh, the condemnation of this man, but she sits up. It, it kind of reminds you of Mary's sitting up earlier, so it thematically links them. And, of course, you're going to have an actual face-to-face -face encounter later on. Mm -hmm. I found it puzzling that some critics of the film objected to the fact that Claudia is very sympathetic in this film. 
And yet there's nothing in the New Testament that suggests that she was otherwise. Mm -hmm. What portrayal she does have in the New Testament, which is rather small, does make her rather, as a matter of fact, quite positive in her attitude. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. It's in Matthew, isn't it? Or yes. is it John? It's in Matthew. It's, it's interesting we're all silent here because we're, I'm sure, all wanting to talk about the historicity of this, and yet this is such a sensitive aspect of the movie for so many people. Yeah. You know, it, it almost kind of uh, muzzles us. Now, some have objected to this, the violence, you know, of, of Jesus ends up, they slap him, they spit him in the face. And so on. This is right out of the Gospels. Right, it's right out of the Gospels, exactly. So it's no invention of uh, a dramatic yeah. imagination. No, no. But just the, just the whole trial itself and the, the, the injustice of it and the, the hostility here. It's, this is, again, this has been so politicized and made such a very sensitive issue. We have to be sensitive, and yet you can't, you, you know, you, well, can't, you can't rewrite history. It because it, it is history. So many times during the life of Jesus, when he was challenged by Pharisees and by the Sadducees, and even they tried to apprehend him, and he always walked away. But here, finally, now, he doesn't walk away, you know? He lets himself be, be mishandled here, be... He's freely, and yet it's so clear that every time he is uh, he is struck and with and the tremendous violence that happens, that he's still in charge. Yeah, yeah exactly. He's always in charge, no yeah. matter no matter what. Yeah, he you know not even in his looks, you know he's not he's not angry. He's not revengeful. He still is is composed and and you know in charge of the situation. This theme is, is emphasized by the use of language, is that very shortly Pilate will address him in Aramaic, since he's mm, a local. Right, right, right. And uh, we have Jesus answering him in, in Latin right. to indicate that, I know your language. Yeah, you and, know, I, and I he can... wanted to make sure Pilate understood him. Exactly. It was another moment for Pilate. And it throws Pilate off completely. Yeah, so yeah. again, Jesus uh, being interrogated, Always but he's in still charge. in charge. Yeah. yeah. This is interesting, the way that Judas is rubbing his mouth here on the stone. That's the yeah. first hint I got that the fact that he betrayed Christ with a kiss is a problem that he's going to he's not going to deal with in the proper way, the way that Peter does later on, as we'll see, with his denial of Christ. Two of the Sanhedrin protest the proceedings and saying this shouldn't be, we shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. Which is from Anne Emmerich. Mm -hmm. And the Gospels themselves indicate too. They, they, they hint at the fact that uh, Nicodemus perhaps and Joseph of Arimathea, you know, were not totally on board with what was going on. If one discusses how historical is this film, you have to be aware that f film has its own ways of, right. of presenting history and the meaning of history. Absolutely, absolutely. And they're not the same as the written word. No. It, it's a work of art. It's a work and, of know, art, it's exactly. It's a medium of communication. He's communicating. Yeah. And yet, even with that in mind, it was, this is remarkably faithful to the written records as well, you know, in many ways. Indeed. And some of the things that 
for example, using the satanic figure throughout or other forms of evil, the gospels speak of this brooding sense of evil in the background. You know, yes. it was night. It was as, night. As Satan gospel, that sort of thing. Him, yes. How do you convey that sense in film? You have to use a different type of symbol that's visual. Yep. Yep. And uh, so in a sense, it again is taking something that's historical and making it uh, mm-hmm. palpable in a, in a film sort of idiom. This is the question of all questions, and, and that's why everything stills, everything's quiet, the camera moves in for his answer, because your answer to this question is the fundamental answer we give in our lives. And of course, I am is a, is a divine claim. Yes, Yahweh. From John's Gospel. Yeah. Going back to the scene in Exodus 3.14 when God appears to Moses, Moses in the burning yeah. bush and says, I am who I am. This tearing, which uh, Caiaphas feels he's obliged to do because he's heard blasphemy, tearing of his garments, I think also foreshadows how the, the veil in the temple is torn in two at the well, end. Indeed. Because it's the same. it's the same design. Yeah. The veil, and he wears a smaller version of that, so he rents it on himself. Yeah. And then, of course, later on, the veil of the temple is rent, yeah. signifying the end of the Old Covenant. Yeah. The Old Testament makes much of the fact that the high priest, by his vestments and so forth, is kind of a microcosm, a miniature model of the temple itself and its furnishings and its fabrics and so forth. Mm-hmm. In Exodus 3, also, not only I am who am, but then once that simple answer, simply I am, mm-hmm. Ehya, I am. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And as you were saying, Father, in John's Gospel, when our Lord identifies himself and he says, I am, he, in the garden, this movie didn't show that, but they kind of fall back to the ground because there's a, a revelation of his divinity that has some sort of impact mm-hmm. on them. This, of course, is Peter's triple denial. It's interesting that at Caesarea Philippi, recorded in Matthew 16, when uh, Peter identifies Jesus as the Christ, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That word hochristos in Greek, or Mashiach, Messiah in Hebrew, meaning the anointed one, really is, he's giving him a threefold office at the same time, because there were three officers anointed in the Old Covenant. There were prophets, priests, kings, all three of them anointed. And then Jesus turns to Peter in the ensuing words in Matthew 16, 17 through 19, and in effect by the, the next three verses gives him a triple office, that he has a prophetic role to carry out in the church as the supreme teacher. He has a priestly role. He's going to be you know, leading the worship and the sacraments, and he has a kingly role. He gets the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So he has a threefold office, and he kind of, in a sense, disqualifies himself three times, and that's why our Lord, when he meets him in Ask John 21, times, yeah. yeah, has to reinstate you love his me? office three times. Yes, you know I times. do. Feed my sheep. Yeah. Feed my sheep. Feed my... Yeah. This is astoundingly poignant. I think uh, it's so easy to identify with Peter in this role of those of us who love and yet are weak and, and fail. Yeah, we all fail to speak up at times when cowardice takes over. Oh, yeah. I remember... Uh, my ancient father, he was in his 80s at the time, came to visit me when I was teaching in Jerusalem. And we went up to the Sea of Galilee. And my father felt very much like Peter, that he had betrayed. I don't know why he felt that so strongly in his life. But with the, uh, with the proclamation of love after the post-resurrection narratives of, Peter, do you love me? Mm-hmm. Uh, my father just sat there and cried and cried. So this uh, whole role of Peter in this film is very special to me, too. Mm. 
This moment here is, I think, is great that he he runs smack into Mary because it's a a precursor to the forgiveness mm -hmm. for wrong. It's the difference between Peter and Judas because he does something with his with his sorrow. He he kneels, he confesses it, he's confessing it to Mary, and then he's saying, "No, I'm not worthy. Non sum dignus. I'm not worthy yeah. to be touched yeah. by you." The role of women in this film is just extraordinary. You know, which, which is, is important. It's very important. You know, for the whole. And especially, it's emphasized in John's Gospel so much mm -hmm. of the role of Mary Magdalene, of Mary, mm -hmm. their role in uh, salvation history. Mm -hmm. I hear again an incredible contrast between Judas's reaction and Peter's. Peter on his knees saying, I am not worthy, you know, I'm a sinner, I can't believe what I did. And Judas demanding, you know, with his own power, with his own will, to undo what he's done. And as, and as if taking back the silver would change the right. historical momentum. No, not at all. Not at all. He's missing the boat. He's not able to take responsibility for his sin, in a sense, to humbly ask for forgiveness. He's trying to fix the, si the situation by his own efforts. But you can't do. You know, we need God's forgiveness. And you see the despair. Here he is wiping his, his lips again, trying to remove the stain, the, the, the stain of yeah, his sin of, of betraying Allah with the kiss on the bag and throwing the bag back. Yeah, here you see his lips getting worse. I think it's important to emphasize in the scene that you have to ask the question, what is going on in Judas's mind or is this external reality? Some have objected saying that, what are you doing? Are you demonizing little kids? No, right? no, of course not. I mean, um, it was a, an accusation of like, you made these children evil, but it's not that. It's just that evil took the form of those children to deceive. Exactly. Which is a totally different thing. Right. But this is Judas trying to deal with his internal demons. Yeah, no. yeah. And the He's other projecting thing is, this, you're saying, on the children. Yes, father. exactly. He's projecting evil on the most innocent of, of things, namely children. And several times in the film, I have portrayed evil in wholesome forms, like kids who are innocent, mm -hmm. or the image of a mother and a child that is wholesome and innocent, mm -hmm. or that woman in the beginning in the cave could be an angel, but you know, you, you lift the veil slightly and there's something wrong. That's the nature of evil, is it's that it pretends to be something else. And the devil has been called the great ape of God. Yeah. And cannot be original, but can uh, emulate. And yet the irony is, even though Judas is projecting his own inner demons, as Father says, upon these children, and he's seeing them as demonic when they are objectively not, at the same time, that the flip side of that is that our Lord said in one of the passages in the Gospels that he compared this generation that heard him to a man who had been exorcised, had the demon cast out of it, and then it comes back with seven demons. And so the final state of that man is worse, worse than the first. first. This is top, top three scenes for me. This moment when Mary's, you know, Jesus is already in prison underneath and Mary's looking for him. And she can sense where he is.
uh, that bond again we were talking about earlier between Mary and Jesus, that she's able to go into the courtyard of Caiaphas and sense his presence there in the dungeon below her and lean down. And, and she not only knows he's down there, but he looks up. He's aware that she's up there. The connection between the two is yeah. so key to the to the dynamics of the film. And you know that's real when you love someone, especially that bond between the mother and son, mother and child. There is a real connection. You know when something's wrong with them. Judah's being pursued by his, and that's, I think, by his conscience. Yes, you know, the, yes, know? surely this is a, uh, this is what's going on in his in his tortured mind. Yep, exactly. Yep. Overseeing the ceremony is our old friend, hmm. the Angel of Light. <laughs> He doesn't get a break. Now his lips are really burnt. Yeah. In uh, the vision of Isaiah, who's a priest of the Old Covenant and, and the, the first greatest prophet in the, the order of prophetic books, there's a scene in Isaiah 6 where he sees God in his glory and he says, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, living in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He's perhaps referring to the fact he's taken God's name in vain and now he's seen this glorious being whose name is taken in vain. And the angel brings a coal and touches his lips and says, I've taken away your pain. So there you have something burning, but it, it heals him. It heals him of his blasphemy. And here Judas is kind of contrasted with that because his lips are becoming ever more blistered because he's kissed Christ, who's again the, the same God that reveals himself uh, to Isaiah, and, and yet his divinity has been masked. Here's what I was talking about later on. The, the one maggot you see coming out of the nostril of Satan in the garden now is replicated a thousandfold in this, in this rotting carcass. And this is the Valley of Hinnom, I guess, which our yes. Lord uses as the symbol of hell. Yeah. He says uh, this is where the people would take their um, carcasses and dump them and incinerate the trash. And so our mm -hmm. Lord talks about it as the place literally where the fire is never quenched and the worm never dies. Never dies because, yeah. yeah. And here you see the, the, the death of this donkey driving him to despair. He takes the actual halter off of it. Yeah. I think the Dewey Reams translation um, of Matthew's account says that the rope he took, the other translations don't catch this, was a halter that yeah, Judas halter. used. He yes, hanged himself with a halter, yeah. We also know from, uh, from Isaiah that there were child sacrifices in Gehenna in the Valley of, Valley of Hinnom too, and that mm -hmm. uh, gives a strong symbolic background to that scene. Mm. Yeah, they would offer their children, burn their children to Moloch and other gods. So many uh, who have objected to the portrayal of Pilate say that he's far too sympathetic and the Romans should be much more guilty. They overlook the fact that Pilate did condemn him to death. Pilate had him scourged. Yeah. 
Pilate is not that sympathetic a figure whatsoever. At all, no. Well, you know, I, I think that says more about the people making the objection. Because, I do too. You know, I mean, the fact is that Pilate doesn't have convictions. You know, no, he, he he's just a wants, manipulator. He's a manipulator and he's trying to climb the ladder. He very clearly tells Claudia later on that I'm in, you know, a bad position here with Rome. They're out to get me. I got yeah, exactly. to figure out something to do here. So it's only himself that he's thinking about. Yeah. He's an ambiguous figure, but the, even the New Testament clearly paints him as rather ambiguous. Ambiguous and scared, you know, yeah. for fear. You know, he does it for fear. Right. He's that another that. sedition will start. And he's already been, honestly, he's been dragged over the coals once by Tiberius. This is neat that our Lord looks up in the midst of all these false allegations and sees this slow motion shot of the dove. You know, there's a line in the Psalms as well where he says, you know, oh, I wish I had the wings of a dove and I could ah, fly yes. away. Remember that? Yeah, I had, I had forgotten yeah. that. So the dove is a sign of hope in a sense, you know, that there will be, that God is still in charge. God is still in charge of this. It's important for Jesus to see that. I think there's a hint also of, of Johannine spirituality here, where uh, Paul speaks of that he humbled himself to death, even death on the cross, it's a downward motion. Mm -hmm. Whereas in John's gospel, it's an upward motion, is that the, mm. it's the beginning of the glory being revealed. Sure. And the dove emphasizes the fact that this is now something wonderful about to happen, not something terrible about to happen. Right. I, if I be John, says I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to myself. And I think the dove also contrasts with the dark bird that you see pecking at, at Gethsemane later on, the, the thief that continues to mock at him. Um, I'll say something more about that maybe when we get to that scene. So you see those looks between the religious leaders and the secular yes. leaders. There's all kinds of subtext going on there, historical, you know, kind of power play. If you put all the uh, four Gospels together, I believe Pilate endeavored 11 separate times to get him off the hook. Yeah. So there's that ambiguity that Father was talking about. I mean, he's, he's, he's being pulled in two directions, there's no doubt about it. And, and therefore, I think, in a sense, Pilate suffers as a paradigm for us. We're expected to see ourselves in him. You know, do we, you know, what is our attitude towards Christ? Is it, uh, are we going to, you know, set him free or are we going to condemn him? And, and you know, we're often, in a sense, uh, ambivalent. There he is, speaking in Aramaic, yeah. right? And Jesus answers him in Latin. And looks right at him first. It's like he's throwing him a line. And now Pilate gets confused, and he doesn't know whether to answer in Aramaic yeah. or, or, or Latin. He goes back and forth. He's no longer in the position of power. He's not about to be foxed by, by Pilate. No. I, I like very much this line, uh, or as another told you about, it's very much like the post-Paschal appearance with Thomas. You know, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. There's a very interesting parallel between this. Is it, again, this question of who do you say Jesus is, and you don't necessarily have to have been there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a question about whether he would have been able to, you know, whether he would have been able to speak Latin, even amongst believers. And uh, my answer to that is always, well, I guess not, but he could certainly stick that guy's ear back on when they cut it off. Yeah. <laughs> Which is harder. Yeah. Know? And of course, even at the level of our Lord's humanity, 
laying aside the fact that yes, as God, obviously he can do miracles like healing the man's eye or speaking in any, he, he gives the apostles the, the miraculous ability to speak in languages they haven't learned on the day of Pentecost. So certainly he is the source of the spirit that comes upon them, is able to do the same thing. Well, I, uh, somebody asked me once, do you really think that Jesus could have used the pluperfect subjunctive? And my answer to that was, uh, I'm not sure he could, but I could. And I, <laughs> I, I would address it. Pilate's trying to play it fast and loose here, right? He doesn't want to take responsibility. So he's going to send everybody, him away. everybody wants to win this one, and gubernator, yes, yeah, sarcastic. Right. That's the thing. He doesn't want to take responsibility for something that could compromise his career, basically. And obviously with the elders of the people here, there's a contest of power. They're tired of, of being dominated by the Roman administration, yeah. Yeah. and they're reasserting themselves as having more power than Pilate thinks. You know, yeah. They, yeah. they want him to know that, that they can... They're threatening him. They're threatening him. I found this portrayal of Herod as the uh, kind of debauched, ceaselessly partying guy very interesting. Well, he wasn't very religious, was he? No, he indeed. didn't have any stock. He was he was of the secular world. Right. He was a hedonist. Dna. U Yeshua din tsaret. Gana. Ana amar dina. Kosti haebritsu leiwereya. Kosti tin tsadvarin min metaya. In fact, what's interesting, he says, are you a king? Like, and he points to himself. He has his, his hands doing this downward motion. And yet, uh, you know, by the standards of the faithful Jewish people of that day, he was not even qualified to sit on the throne of David because he was King Herod the Great, the one who had attempted to put Christ to death when he was a baby. And then his descendants, the whole Herodian dynasty, were Idumeans. They were from Edom or Esau. They were not actually Israelites at all. So you had on the seat of the political power of a the usurper? Jewish people, a usurper. And you, and you have usurpers on the seats of the uh, ecclesiastical hierarchy as well, because Caiaphas and Annas were not descended from Zadok. When God made the, pro the covenant to David that your descendants will sit on the throne, he also said, and the descendants of Zadok, your high priest, will sit on the throne as well. So you have usurpers on both seats, uh, bo in both church and state, you might say, to show that this is, you know, the last few hours and years are ticking out on this. This, this thing is about to, to collapse because it's disinherited itself from its covenant promises. And of course, Herod had no real power anyway. He was simply put in as a puppet and tolerated by the Romans. Yeah. It was just a, a, a sop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Love that shot of the leopard because, you know, when we give ourselves over to the base pleasures, we become like animals. I felt this scene was necessary to express Pilate's dilemma, because indeed it was his dilemma. 
He'd had encounters before. It's reported in Josephus mm -hmm. with the uh, incident of the standards. Remember mm -hmm. that? Yeah. And he, he got in big trouble for that. Yeah. And again, the, those who uh, feel that Claudia is being too sympathetic, I, I think, uh, are overlooking the dynamic that women have amongst themselves, too, because it will come up a little later with Claudia's relationship with Mary and with, with Magdalene. Why is that so offensive to people? Why are they offended at the fact that there are people here who are not wishing to see Jesus put to death? That's an enigma to me. I, I think, mean, yeah, it, it is puzzling to me too. I, I suppose because many would like to see more blame put on the Romans. Okay. But again, as you've pointed out, Father, there are representatives of both those that are for and against him, both among the Gentiles and among the Jewish people. Yes, so all the way through. I, it's not a stack stack by any means. You know, that what you were saying, Mel, about Pilate's own inner struggle here is interesting. You can tell that this issue is hanging over him because the very last words out of his mouth when he's with Jesus is, what is truth? And then you have all those other scenes, and when he comes back to this scene now, that's the very first words out of his mouth again. It's like he hasn't stopped thinking about it. That question's been echoing in his mind all throughout the time, and so he says it now to Claudia. Oh, things are getting tense. He'd backed down to all these guys once before in the matter of the standards, hadn't he? Yes. So uh, he was indeed susceptible to pressure. We should explain him. what we mean by that, just for the sake of the viewers who might not oh, know that history. So. That the Roman soldiers had standards with the imperial eagle on it, and they would offer sacrifices as part of the imperial cult to that. And, and of course, the Jewish people found that offensive because they saw these as idols, and they wanted them removed from the, the sacred precincts of Jerusalem. They did not want those, they want them left outside, left at the door, you might say, so that there was not idolatry yeah. inside the city. And there were people killed be because of it. That's right. And so often in here where, where Pilate seems gentle or more concerned, it is, of course, fear, not... not uh, That's what it is. ...not concern. He's afraid because Tiberius told him, if another incident like that happens again, you're in big trouble. At the same time... So he's afraid for his own career. If, yes. And, and, or his and the, head. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But at the same time, he's such a complex individual because I think you see with those scenes with him and Claudia, he has a great respect for his wife. He trusts her intuition. And, and I think there's a part of him, he's not just looking out for his own skin. I think mm. there's a part of him that really says, this man does not deserve this fate that he's going to. So, so mm. he's conflicted himself that he's sending him to a fate that I don't think he's convinced he deserves. And that's certainly clear in the New Testament, that ambiguity. I think the parallel between Barabbas here and, and Jesus is interesting too. They're both in chains, they're both at these two pillars flanking Pilate. He's got to pick between the two. Even the fact that you portray Barabbas here with that whitened eye, that cataract, and our Lord has, of course, his eye closed yeah. by, the, by the, uh, the punch, that the blow that he receives. So there's a kind of a parallel there. And of course, in the Aramaic, which Father... Uh, Bar of course, Abbas. Yeah, they're both Bar Abbas. They're both son Bar of the, the Father. father. This is another one of those wonderful scenes, too, in the film, where the meeting of eyes with Jesus changes somebody. Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. occurs several times in the film, almost as a leitmotif. Almost in every scene, 
Somebody. He finds somebody. Mm-hmm. His reaction to the look of Jesus is stunning. Yeah. As it is yeah. with everybody that Jesus encounters. Yeah. Here it right is. Right here. And Jesus' look, it's not accusing, it's not anger, it's not vengeful, it's inviting. It's saying, look into your soul. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'm letting you free, almost as if he's letting Just him free, moment. giving him another chance. It bothers Barabbas, that look that he gets. He, he stops his jollification there for a moment, and then he, you know, he tries and to he break shakes away. Off, yeah. yeah. Whether that's a rejection or a rejection of a seed planted for later, we'll never know. Yeah. <laughs> I had a run-in with a very famous, uh, I won't mention his name, <laughs> uh, radical biblical critic who took great exception to this scene and said, you know, there couldn't have been more than six to 12 people there in that courtyard saying crucify him. I know fathers had a run-in with the same individual. Yes, <laughs> we won't mention him. Uh, but we, but, uh, but it's, it's, it's absurd that somebody, you know, and an, again, an attempt to engage in revisionism is, I mean, he wasn't there with his video cam. How does he know there could have been more than six to 12 people? But he just took exception to this, that there were just too many people, hmm. uh, you know, in that crowd saying crucify him. You know, Pilate's last comment before they started, when he sent him off to the flagellation, and then he told Ebenezer, you know, make it serious, but don't let them kill him. Yes. That shows when, that this was actually one form of capital punishment. You know, that they would... That oh, people, scourging to death. Yeah, scourging yeah. to death. Was yeah. So, you know, it was a, a harsh way to be punished. There's a dispute in some of the ancient sources. Was the tradition that... Uh, you could only scourge not up to 40, but not including 40. Was that a Jewish tradition? Was it a Roman tradition? Was mm. it something? That, the way they handled Jesus was not according to any tradition. Right. And uh, right. so it's a, the question really doesn't uh, make much sense in this case. Right. They're not trying to fulfill some sort of, uh, you know, nicety. No. And, you know, that comes across as well by the way these guys are, by what they're like. You know, because they're, they're just, they're brutes, you know. They're soldiers. They're guys used to, you know, rough guys yeah. and... And very rough. You'll notice yeah. that, that uh, throughout the very few uh, subtitles, mm. because I managed to track down uh, graffiti from Roman army camps <laughs> and use those as the basis for the dialogue here, and some of it is pretty yeah, rough. That's great. Some Latin scholars have asked, did he say what I thought he said? <laughs> yeah, they did. You know, that line that Jesus just said was another line from the Psalms. My heart is ready, my heart is ready, yes. oh God. Again, it you know, says that he's praying all of this. He sees his father's will in this. He's taking it on freely. Oh, even though it's so painful. Yeah, again, emphasizing that it's a divine plan. Yeah, that it's part of the plan somehow. You know, it's like Jesus had to be faithful to his father's will, even when it was really, really, really hard, you know, in order to, to be our savior, to trust God, to show that he can trust God. You know, I, th I think a really important theological uh, understanding of this scene, which is such a, a rough scene, it's a Johannine sort of theology, is that uh, God enters into the human situation and enters into every type of human suffering, even unto death, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and transforms it from the inside. And I think that as rough as this particular section is with the, uh, the scourging, here even the, the, the priests are, are distressed by, the, right, by how, the, yeah. what they're saying. How violent it is. is. It means that no matter what we go through in life, is that God is within it, and the possibility of salvation is, and for freedom is right there. 
in John's Gospel, Jesus is about to go to the to the crucifixion. He calls it the hour of glory. And yeah, it's right. a grain of wheat falling in the ground. And where I go, you must follow. Yes. It's the, it's the whole thing that God doesn't save us from sin and suffering and from evil that we're looking at now. He doesn't save us by eliminating it. No. And that's the mystery. God is within it. He comes and into it and meets us there and teaches us how to love and forgive even in the midst of it. And, and that's that, the mystery of the incarnation. Is exactly. It, is that Jesus is the, that's the, the presence point. of God in humanity. Yeah. In, in suffering humanity. Humanity that's subjugated to evil and to... Uh, to suffering. And I know for the person who has suffered, and I, I've had some pretty rough times in my own life, is seeing the suffering of Jesus, as much as this may be uh, a violent passage, there's something remarkably consoling about it, mm -hmm. knowing that no matter what goes on in my life, you know, that uh, my heart must also be ready. Yeah, exactly. And that God knows that he's there, that he's yeah. with me, that he's with me in the midst of it, you know. And Jesus looks at Mary, who's, you know, his mother, but also a symbol of the church, of every Christian. Mm. And he's going to suffer for us so that we know that we're never alone, you know, that he's never going to give up. So he gets that new burst of strength when he sees Mary, when he sees his mother. He's reminded what he's doing this for. I like your observation that the Mary is representing the, the church and the, yeah. the body of Christians and the, her response. You know, I did not understand when I was a Protestant that Mary as God's masterpiece, as this first Christian, the Christian before Christ, as many of the church fathers called her, is herself the result of Christ's saving work. You know, she wouldn't be that if he had not done this for her. So when he looks at his mother, he's doing this for her. Pope Pius IX points this out in his bull in a fabulous Deus, uh, December 8, 1854, where he talks about what the Catholic Church means about immaculate conception, that Mary is what she is, full of grace, because Jesus has done his saving work for her no less than, than for all of us. His glances at her in the meaning of eyes also emphasizes what I think is a very strong theme of this film, is that the passion is not something that happens to him, it's something that he does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It is with his right. initiative, and, and of course it culminates in the key line of the film, uh, the key line of the passion, behold, I make all things new. Yeah. yeah. He's not victim in that sense, he is. Yeah, yeah, it's a passion, but it's not passive. That's right. And he makes that point later. He, there's the passage in one of the flashbacks where he says, the Father loves me because I lay down my life. You know, it's not taken from me. I lay it down in my own yeah. accord, yeah. yeah. This is why in the Johannine perspective, this is a movement upwards and not a movement downwards. Mm -hmm. This is, we are being liberated at each moment of this passion because our passion is caught up in this and at the end of this is uh, life and resurrection. And because of this bond between Jesus and Mary, not only is this his decision, Yikes. but it's also her decision too. She gives that little slight not, you know, yeah. inclination of the head when he looks at her, just that we just saw about a minute ago. He looks at her when their eyes lock and she nods, like, go ahead, let this be. She's saying what she said, you know, when he first became incarnate in her womb, let it be to me according to your word. And more than once, uh, she says, Amen. Mm -hmm. So be it. Yeah. So be it. Yes, she was cooperating with this salvific work. I tried to make that obvious. But again, that's something that no one else has done. Uh, this is such an enormous and important achievement of this film that no previous, and I've seen, I think, every movie silent and talking uh, about Jesus that's, that's been made, none of them make this point, show the bond between mother and son, show the participation of Mary in this suffering. Nowhere in this portrayal is she shown as resisting what is happening, 
She is sorrowful about it, but she is always... Oh, she's suffering terribly. She's yeah. suffering terribly with it, but she is also acceding to it. Sure. Yeah. Well, there's We're... dignity there. And of course, this was predicted way back in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Luke, when she brings her infant son into the temple and has the encounter with Simeon the prophet, who says, you know, that this child is set for the rising and the falling of many, and a sword shall pierce your own soul also. That is, the sorrow that he will undergo, you're going to feel in, in your heart of hearts as well. So she knew from the beginning that she would be, you know, the one that would be ultimately compassionate, suffering his passion with him, feeling, feeling it in the depths and the echoes of her own soul. Maya Morgenstern, of course, who played, the one playing Mary, is Jewish. And she spoke many times that she so could identify the role, with the role as, as a Jewish mother with her son suffering. But she also instinctively saw something uplifting and beautiful about this, even in the process. She was extremely generous and a wonderful actress. Remarkable one. This is directly from Ann Emmerich. Mm -hmm. But now several adverse commentators have said, why not only giving to the cloth out of compassion, which seems to me uh, does not give much value to the way women relate to one another, at least as I am told, but with subsequently wiping up the blood, which uh, Magdalene and Mary do in the scene coming up very shortly. That is, what is the historicity of that? Well, my goodness, if anyone has been in Jerusalem with a bus blowing up, where devout Jews will come with cloths and get every last bit of flesh or blood because it's a sign of life. Mm -hmm. It's a sign that life is, is the presence of God and it's too precious to just leave, it must be, it must be taken up and given dignity. So mm -hmm. it's a very Jewish thing. But with the extra understanding that this is sacrificial blood of the, of the Lamb of God. Yes. The sacredness of all blood, as Father says in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, the blood is the life, Leviticus says over and over again, is ultimately fulfilled in this. I mean, this is the, the quintessentially sacred blood. All that sacrificial blood pointed forward to this blood that would be shed here. Yeah. In a famous painting by Cimabue of the crucifixion, the, uh, the blood flowing from Christ's side and from his wounds flows and forms the frame of the entire picture, which is symbolically framing the entire Christian experience, mm -hmm. the blood of Christ frames history. Mm -hmm. It's the matrix in which all this takes place. And of course, matrix comes from Matir. It's he received, you know, his humanity, the flesh and the blood he could offer from his mother. I've got more questions oh, yeah. about yeah, this some than people anything else. Like yeah, Rosemary's <laughs> baby, but as, as you've pointed out so often, what could be more beautiful than a mother and child until it reveals itself when evil comes as the, under the appearance of something beautiful and good, but then gradually reveals itself as frightening and evil. And it comes to gloat. Yes. And she's, of course, is the inverse of, of the Madonna the in childhood. Version, yeah. But that, that sacramental sense of the blood flowing out and becoming yeah. the, the binding force of salvation is... Uh, and it ties in perfectly with this flashback. Yeah, it's marvelous. Because what he's doing, he's bathing their feet. He's washing them, which is a symbol of washing them of their sin. And what is his blood doing in the scene we just saw? It's going on to the, you know, even his attacker, it's going on to their feet. He's bathing them, he's washing yes. them in his blood, 
washing them of their sins. They're sprayed with it. Uh, yeah, there's several of the scenes. That. In fact, uh, deliberately, a couple of the, the almost crazed Romans, you see the blood spraying their face mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as a symbol of they too are, are part of salvation history. Yeah, yeah. And this happens, of course, at the crucifixion scene. So, you know, It's interesting, though, that in the Gospels, during this scene when Jesus is washing his disciples' feet, he's not saying these lines. And yet we juxtapose what you were talking about earlier. We bring those lines from later in the Last Supper. We put them at this point. No, and Jesus is giving the message. You know, this, uh, this line, you know, if they've persecuted you, they've persecuted me. In the filming of this, uh, of the Passion, some of the early reaction was extremely painful to, to endure because uh, we got a lot of, of negative reactions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Who do you people think you are and so on? Um, and that line frequently occurred to us, you know, is when you do, Jesus is always a sign of contradiction. Right. Right. Is in the Gospels, you're faced with, uh, you either change your life or you don't. Yes. You know? I remember one lady during this scene, during a, you know, one of the previews, one of the showings, she, she wanted to get up and leave. And she started to get up, but then a thought occurred to her, she told, told us later, you know, if Jesus suffered this for me, the least I can do is watch it. The least I can nice. do is watch it. And I think there's something to that. We didn't get a chance to comment on the colophon that opens the film because we were introducing ourselves then, but... That sets the context, too. And, and by the way, that, that shows how silly the objections people made that uh, this suffering is never given a context. Why is this happening? Well, it says, before you even see the action, you have that quote from Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. This, this is why everything you're about to see is happening. It's to solve the problem of our sins. Of our fall. You know, another kind of level of that, the blood that's being spilled, you know, in the sacrifices in the old temple in Jerusalem, the Old Testament sacrifices, all the blood was gathered up. Not one drop was Not wasted. Not one drop, exactly. Not one drop was wasted, and that's reminiscent here. You're talking to a lot of priests who've seen this film. At this moment when they begin to, to wipe up the blood, it reminds them of the moment during the Mass when they purify the vessels, you know, after communion. Oh, very nice. You know, which is every last drop. In the older rubrics, it was even more pronounced, the, uh, the imagery. Uh-huh. Thinking about the crown of thorns that's placed upon uh, Jesus' head there, all the imagery occurs later in the Bible, occurs in germinal form in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And in Genesis 3, God predicts because of sin, because of the fall, that thorns and thistles will grow out of the ground. And all the punishments that are just mentioned in Genesis 3, all the curses that sin brings upon us, all have to come upon Christ. Because as Paul says, he has made a curse uh, for us. And another one of the... uh Johannine-type ironies fit for a king, and indeed it is exactly fit for a king. Mm-hmm. Mm. That what is uttered in sarcasm is, as a matter of fact, theologically profound. Mm. Did you notice here that Mary Magdalene doesn't use one of the cloths that Mary has? She uses her own veil to wipe up his blood. Uh, as a matter of fact, I had not noticed that. Yeah, which was, which was a, a detail that Mel added wasn't in the Anne Catherine writings where he got the idea. Because it's a personal moment for her, and so then she goes to her flashback. When she was the one who was about to get stoned, it was going to be her blood that was shed yes. at this moment, right? When they're about to kill her. I love the line that he draws in the sand, you know, sort of putting her on the 
same side of the line with himself and her accusers on the other side. Now, remember the snake going forth from right. the satanic figure right. in the garden going toward Jesus? Uh-huh. Now, if we notice what happens when Mary is uh, there. This, of course, may be a secondary addition in the Gospels in the identifying the woman taking adultery with Mary Magdalene as a strong Christian tradition. Right. goes way back. This is the, the place where Jesus would have said the famous line, he who has no sins, throw the first stone. And yes. of course, they all realize that, well, I'm a sinner too, so they throw their stones down. And then he gives her a new chance. But again, in the medium of films. That's the snake? Is that there, yeah, yes. Yeah, how it echoes the same. Right. And even the little, the little quavering of her hand too, again, which links her with Christ. I mean, her, her sin brings a suffering in her life that she brings to Christ. And certainly there were, you know, many church fathers, I think it's a preponderance, unless I'm mistaken, uh, that did make that identification. That yes, say indeed. the unnamed woman in John 8 is indeed Mary Magdalene. It could have been. Yeah. It could well have been, and it certainly uh, serves to bring out many of the meanings of the Passion narrative itself, mm -hmm. of forgiveness, of sense of values. Mm -hmm. In fact, her face there, where she was being caught in flagrante delicto in the act, with she has all the scrapes on her face, very much like Judas's before, but she did something different with her sin and her guilt than Judas did. It drove her to Christ, and she found forgiveness. Seeing Jesus in this scene always reminds me of that line from the Bible where it says, I am not a man, I'm, I'm a worm and no man. You know, he looks almost totally disfigured, he's barely human. And even Pilate and, and uh, Abinadius, they, they're, yeah, they're, they're shocked. They're, they're going to keep their course, but at the same time, they're still bothered. Mm -hmm. That's important. That's what sin does, and this is how much God loves us. You know, in a sense, the intensity of Christ's suffering is a direct reflection of the intensity of God's love. He's willing to suffer to the end, you know, to the crucifixion. So Pilate's torn, you know, and how many of us have been torn? Claudia stands for his conscience in a sense, and he betrays his conscience because he's afraid of the consequences. You notice that almost every time there's a, a moral crisis for him, she appears briefly in the background, yep, yep. either at the window or in the room. Yeah. Or She's his, her, his voice of moral reason. This statement of Jesus is interesting because although there's plenty of sin to go around, as we've been saying many times, there's guilt, you know, we're all implicated in the death of Christ. It's my sins, it's your sins, it's all of our sins that made this necessary hmm. for our redemption. At the same time, when Jesus talks about he who handed me over to you has the greater sin, 
we're reminded of a complementary truth in Scripture, that there are degrees of sin. There are degrees of punishment in hell, degrees of reward in heaven, and, you know, there's a hierarchy there of, of degrees of culpability. Some are guiltier than others. And here, here again we see Pilate clearly acting out of fear, not out of great uh, kindness and gentleness, and he does condemn him to be crucified without flinching an eye. Mm -hmm. And yet Jesus does say that although he bears a guilt, there's no doubt about it, he doesn't wash his hands, he doesn't exonerate himself by what he's about to do here with the basin. But still, Jesus says, he, he, he bears a lesser burden of guilt. To whom much is given, of them much is required, Jesus says. And so, you know, he had less knowledge of what was going on here and, and therefore uh, a somewhat lesser guilt. Yeah, here's another one, flashback coming up, which is, uh, you know, very, very well thought out. Ah, the waters in the temple, Ezekiel. Yeah, the waters in the temple. Cleansing. And the priests who washed their hands before the sacrifice. Because right now, with, the, with uh, him being condemned, that's the sacrifice begins. He's going to be condemned to death. It's interesting, too, that when Pilate washes his hands there in the basin, he dries his hands on the same sort of linens that, yeah. that Claudia, of course, brings. So there's an, there's an equation being made there. In other words, um, the water that he washes his hands with, he is still guilty of. He's not really innocent of this man's blood. He does send him to his death. So th that towel, which absorbs that water from his hand-washing, is equated visually with the towel that soaks up the actual blood of Christ. They're, yeah. both, they're both saturated with the blood of Christ, one symbolically, one literally. And of course, uh, Jesus' answer to him makes clear that again, no matter who is guilty, whether it's Pilate or the one who handed him over uh, to Pilate, it's all part of the divine plan in the first place, that this again right. is, is Jesus, it's the choice of the Father. Yeah, you see those two truths always kept very close together in Scripture, sometimes in the same breath, when Peter on the, in his sermon on Pentecost in Acts 2.23 says, Him, he's referring to Christ, being delivered up by the predetermined counsel of God, you have with wicked hands crucified and slain. So on the one hand, it's the two sides of the coin. It's God's will. It's God's plan from all eternity. He's the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world, Peter says in his first letter. And yet our wickedness, that doesn't let us off the hook. We can't say, well, it was God's will, so we, you know, we're not responsible. We are responsible. Human responsibility, man's freedom, God's sovereignty, the two work in a complementary fashion. The one doesn't cancel out the other. Hmm. I'm your servant. Another line from the Psalms. And again, although uh, uh, the casual viewer might not notice it, as frequently when he is citing the Psalms, to emphasize that it's part of a long tradition. Yes. Uh, he laps into Hebrew rather than Aramaic. He laps in, yeah. So many of the lines uh, between now and the end of the film are directed to us. Why do you embrace your cross, fool? Hmm. It's not just addressed to Jesus, it's clearly addressed to us. Mm -hmm. It's not the wisdom of the, uh, of the world. It's a No. Yeah, Paul says, exactly, Father. We, we preach Christ crucified, which is foolishness to the world. The whole idea of worshiping a God who died upon a cross, a shameful criminal's death, strikes the uh, philosophically sophisticated uh, Greeks as, uh, as a highly foolish message. And yet the foolishness of God, he says, is wiser than the wisdom of men. The weakness of God in allowing himself to suffer and die is more powerful than the strength of men. And here he's thinking back, the same people who welcomed him into Jerusalem as a victor and a king a week ago are now the ones jeering at him. 
here you see that parallel again. You know, Mary on one side of the crowd, but very human, people having to move out of the way, and Satan gliding, you know, effortlessly, spiritually through and the crowd. And she recognizes it. Yeah. yeah. And, and it recognizes her. Mm-hmm. There's a reticence there. There's a kind of almost a wary kind of careful, like a danger for the evil one. Mm-hmm. A respect right. for the power of your, of your opponent. Yeah, he yeah. fears her. And in fact, she's the only other person in this whole movie that actually sees him, that actually makes eye contact with him other than Jesus. Jesus never makes eye contact with him. Oh, he doesn't? Okay. Nope. All right. But he, see, but he sees him. He's he knows he's there. He doesn't okay. bother to look at him. All right. Though. Very interesting. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for correcting that. Yeah. But he's aware of his presence. Mary yes. is. But she's the only one that actually looks. And, interesting. And sees, and they lock eyes, and there's a battle. Very interesting. A spiritual battle. Someone sent me uh, a letter a few weeks ago saying that, uh, you know, I'd, if you do a film on the resurrection, that's what I want to see. I want to see how we're, we're saved. And I find that so uh, uh, unbalanced, just precisely by identification with the passion of Christ that we can identify with his, uh, with his sure. resurrection. If, as Paul says, you know, you must be baptized. You must go down into the water to emerge from the water. Now, Jesus himself says, did you not know it was necessary for the Son of Man to undergo these things? Mm-hmm. Necessary. Yeah, the grain of wheat. Uh, yes, it must fall on the ground and die. Yeah. You were talking earlier, Father, about all those downward steps in that famous hymn of the incarnation of uh, St. Paul in Philippians 2. He had to take all these downward steps, become a man, not just any man, but a, you know, a lowly man, suffer death, not just any death, but the most shameful death. He had to take all these downward steps to take all the upward ones that result in his resurrection, his exaltation, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Yes. The I, way up is down. The, the contrast between uh, Paul and... Uh, John in this regard, I think, shows our own moods of how we understand ourselves. Sometimes when we suffer, it is only through prayer and reflection that we see what is actually going on in it. Sometimes if we're in a more Johannine mood, we can see that from the very beginning that we're identifying with something that is is so much bigger than ourselves. John has very little to say in this film, but his face says it all. I think that's because he's so, so contemplative. I mean, he's the one who really, I mean, he's the only apostle that we see sort of keeping company with uh, Mary, and, and he, he's getting this, this profound insight because of his contemplation of what's mm-hmm. unfolding before him. And I think he's, he represents us. Yeah. Oh, of course. And he was the one who was really the eyewitness of everything. Mm-hmm. He was the one that had courage to stick around. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was interesting that he was the last one to write about it. Mm-hmm. I like to think that I am the disciple that Jesus loved. Yeah. That's why commentators, both Protestant and Catholic, point out that he's never referred to as John in those passages in his gospel. He's referred to as the beloved disciple. So it's a kind of a fill in the blank. And so when Jesus says to the beloved disciple, what we're going to hear and at the cross, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother, each of us is supposed to see ourselves in that role, we're to be adopting her, to t- realizing that a relationship with Jesus necessarily entails a relationship with his mother and that she cares for us because we are one of those for whom Christ died. This is the most moving, I think. I think everyone who sees the film sees this as the, as the most moving scene. I think having seen the scene many, many times now, it is given a real uh, depth to my own devotion to Mary as mother.
booing me. <laughs> to my mind, that's the key line of the entire film. Sure. Comes from the acts, doesn't it? It comes from the, from uh, the apocalypse. apocalypse. The, the apocalypse. Yeah. apocalypse. Yeah. And what's so interesting is there, Christ is saying it sitting on a throne of glory. Here he's saying it, you know, uh, at the lowest level of his humiliation and so forth. But in other words, the message is that Mary has the insight to see that even though he's not sitting on a throne of glory here, he's undergoing this horrible humiliation and passion that he is performing the work that that he completes when he gets back to heaven. He is making all things new by this. Uh, he's making suffering new. He's making it a whole new thing. This is interesting that this that this man Cassius, is he called? Yeah, Cassius. Uh, later on, who becomes Longinus' baptismal name, uh, is is attracted to Mary. He sees he says, yes. who is that woman, and it's his being drawn to her that ultimately draws him to Christ. She yeah. functions as a mediatrix. As a, a mediatrix, yeah. Yeah, it's a wonderful parallel to the uh, to the earlier question of who do you say that Jesus is, and mm -hmm. now who do you say that this woman is? Mm. That's a wonderful face of that woman, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And again, you see in the crowd here many faces that show there's, you know, there's no unanimity here among, among these people as to whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. There are people that are, are reveling in this uh, people who are, suffering. There's people yeah. that are lamenting it and saying this, this should not be. And they're not all glamorous or beautiful people, too, which I like very much. Yeah. I think she has a kind of beauty. Mm -hmm. Not classical at all, but really... There's something deep about this girl. Mm -hmm. I love this actress. I think she's great. This is preparing for another one of those intimate person-to-person -person encounters with Christ. Yeah, obviously she'll be identified with Christ when, you know, what happens later on when she uh, offers her class to Which is not scriptural, him. of course, but... Uh, no, but it's one of those tradition, traditions, yeah, yeah that... I mean, even the scripture writers remind us that there were many things that John, that Father's been mentioning so many times here, says twice at the end of his gospel in John 20, 31, and John 21, 25, that there were many other things Jesus said and did that were not If you tried to write them here. down, you know. The whole, the whole world couldn't hold the books. Hmm. And, of course, Luke starts out his, uh, his gospel in the Acts the same way, too. Mm -hmm. In fact, John says in, in, in two of his letters, his second and his third epistle, it's in 2 John 12 and 3 John 13, he says, I have many more things I wish to teach you, but I do not wish to do so with pen and ink. I will do it when I come to you face to face. And that's a verse that really hit me between the eyes when I was rereading the Bible as a Protestant minister, realizing, wait a minute, these apostles did all kinds of teaching about the events of Jesus' death, the meaning of his death that they did not put down in the, in the four written accounts. I want to have access to all of it. I want the full message, and I have to read what their successors, the apostles, Fathers wrote. Well, the written accounts weren't available for a long time, and to most people, even after they were written. So uh, mm -hmm. I, I guess that sort of teetered your notion of uh, scripture as solace. Yeah, scripture, scripture alone is, is something the Bible itself doesn't even teach. In fact, Paul says, hold fast to all the traditions, whether they came to you in written or in oral form, Second yeah. Thessalonians 2, 14. And, and this, you know, Veronica's encounter that's coming up here is certainly an example of one of those. This is a great 
conversion here of Simon because you see him start out as a man who wants nothing to do with Jesus. It's just a quote accident. Of course, there's no accidents in human history, but it's a quote accident that his path just happened to cross. Jesus is on Jesus's way to, to Calvary. And so he's pressed into service by the Roman soldiers. He's so concerned with his reputation, he says, all right, just, just remember, guys, that I'm an innocent man being forced to carry a condemned man's cross. But as you see, as it continues, he, he wants to shoulder this cross. He wants to help get this man wh where he needs to go to fulfill his destiny. There's some beautiful physical contact between the two as the, uh, as the procession of the cross continues. Very tender. That's all of us, really, is we're unwilling to drag it, you know. But, you know, there's a whole other level because, you know, this is the big feast day of the Passover. And now by participating in this, he's now made unclean. He can't participate in the liturgies. That's right. You know, which is a, he was a, a pilgrim there, you know, just for that purpose. But his life is going to be transformed by this encounter. And we follow him along with it. And his conversion is, is intimated in Scripture. All that the tradition does is really flesh things out, but it's all there in form. I mean, when I talk to my Protestant friends, I say, look, I can prove every Catholic doctrine just from Scripture alone. I'll meet you on your own terms. But the fact that the tradition tells us that Simon of Cyrene converted later on is hinted at in Scripture because Mark in his gospel, when he mentions the Simon of Cyrene, he says he's the father of two disciples that are well known to the Roman church. In other words, obviously this man converted, raised his children yes. in the faith, and, and his two sons are known to the Roman congregation for whom Mark writes his gospel. He's writing for the Romans. And surely he and his, and his offspring were fixtures in the early church. But my point is that that's only the, yeah. that would only be the case if, if he did convert, in other yeah, words. So, yeah. so his encounter with Christ was, was fruitful, as this encounter is here, too. And even the, uh, this encounter with the, the woman we traditionally call Veronica mm -hmm. embodies a real truth that uh, if one empathizes with the passion of Christ, mm -hmm. we are imprinted with Christ. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So some of these things have a, a richness to them that are they're beyond simply questioning whether it happened this way or that way. Mm -hmm. And she noticed she kisses the cloth after it, you know, has imbibed his precious blood. She she brings it to her lips to again show her identification with him. And and we're going to see Mary later on kissing her her son's crucified feet on the cross and coming away with with the blood. Yes, a powerful scene. Tradition has it that he'd met her before and that she was the woman with the issue of blood. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. So there's a beautiful poetic irony there, too. Mm. The fact that he who healed her of her 12 years of losing blood now gives her his own blood to be a, a memento of this fateful day, to be a relic. And Simon was the only one in the film who's actually called a Jew yes. is Jesus' best friend. He's the one who comes to his defense right now. He said, no, this is unfair, this is unjust. And being laughed at and humiliated just as sure. Jesus was. Sure. You become a disciple of Christ, you become mocked like Christ. And this scene makes clear is that the, there's a Roman oppression of the Jews. Sure, sure. Yeah. In a sense, you know, I, I think the Bible almost encourages us to draw parallels, to draw some line of connection, to connect the dots, you might say, between people who have similar names or the same names. The Bible clearly does that in its theology. And so it's not, I think, an accident that this man's name is Simon, 
I mean, he's doing what Simon, uh, son of Jonah, you know, Peter should have been doing. This should have been Peter's role to be with his Lord, to, to, to be, yes. you know, standing with him. And he's not so, here's a substitute, Simon. But this, you know, this man will uh, end up joining the church as well because of his uh, being brought into this close saving contact with Christ. Isn't that beautiful? The yeah. uh, the, the arms crossing there. Yeah. Another. It's another cross on top of the wooden cross. This is so neat just to see that, you know, you're shown it very quickly and Christ again makes eye contact with her. So you're looking at Christ's face and then, Mel, you're very generous with the audience to give them a second chance to see what they might have missed the first time Third, to see. fourth, yeah. fifth. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> to see the image of Christ on yeah. the veil. When we make acts of generosity to those who are suffering and those who are in need, Christ promised that, you know, we're doing it to him and he imprints his love in our own hearts. There's so much tradition in the Hebrew Bible about uh, wanting to see the face of God. The face of God, that's right. You know, and Job Seek his talks face. About, yeah, and Job complained that I want to see your face, and then we, then we could answer and speak to one another. Mm -hmm. The only day we didn't have sun. <laughs> when we wanted. Well, of course, everyone lost the sun later on in that day, around yeah. noon. I'm saying 2,000 years ago. This is an interesting contrast of the, uh, the leaders, the chief priests coming up on their donkeys, kind of a contrast with Jesus' entry, triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. Yes. Because they're not being acclaimed by the crowds and, you know, with the palm branches and so forth. And yet, they, I mean, they saw his triumphal entry as a threat to their own desire to be perceived as the, the experts and the leaders of the people. This is one of the most beautiful scenes, I think, of the whole film. It's, it's a remarkable piece of cinematography. Hmm. Politic. All the falls of our Lord, every time our Lord falls. And Quite different. Yes. No, they all needed to have a different character. So many of the comments are nearly there, and also when he's being fixed to the cross, it's clearly that the crucifixion is seen as the high point mm -hmm. and not the low point. Mm-hmm. Even the vocabulary just keeps pointing in that direction. Almost done, yeah. Almost done. Mm -hmm. The good thing is almost here. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, our Lord is going to say on the cross, it is done, it, it is, is finished, done, it is consummated, tetelestai. This flashback is fascinating. When you see him preaching this sermon, and on both sides you see Jesus actually doing it, it brings a whole other level of meaning to these words. You know, these said, oh, love your enemies. This is the toughest thing of all. Oh, yeah. You mean this, obe obeying this command? Yeah. Yep. Everything in us wants to get even. But what good is it? And the neat thing is about that flashback is that you're showing again 
the parallel of the two mountains. That's the Sermon on the Mount, of course, recorded there in Matthew mm -hmm. 5. Yeah. Our Lord is ascending a different mountain, and it's when he sees the summit of Calvary ahead of him, Golgotha, that he has the flashback to the other one. But in other words, it's another mountain, but it's the same sermon. In other words, he's preaching this same message, yeah. love your enemies. He's preaching it now, living it out by hanging on the cross. And of course, he'll be praying, Father, forgive them, and know not what they do. I don't know if this juxtaposition was intentional, but of course you, you have the, the the sunlight coming through the seated high priests there on the donkeys and immediately Christ saying in this flashback, I am the good shepherd. In other words, I am the one that's truly the pastor, truly caring um, for these people. Because he does talk in, this, in the gospel sometimes about those who are not good shepherds, who are not really meeting the spiritual needs of God's people. In fact, the Old Testament has several prophecies, you know, the woe to those shepherds who are not, you know, feeding the flock, Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel and so forth. And, and our Lord certainly has those Old Testament passages in his mind when he says, I am the good shepherd. Is that another one of these flashbacks, which is, it talks about, we, you know, I'm doing this. I have the power to do this. This is part of the plan, right? And again, the, the very strong emphasis, not just in the Gospels, but very much in this film, he's repeating over and over, I have power to lay down my life and to take it up again. Right. This is uh, something willing, it's not something that happens to him, it's something that he does. Mm -hmm. Hmm. He's no. not a victim, in other words, in he's one not a sense. Victim. In one no. sense. In one sense, no. Victim in the, in the priestly sense, yes, but not in the uh, political sense. Of course, the culpability for his crucifixion lies upon all of us. Yes. Right. Now, the material agents of his death were his own people. And the Romans, of course, who did yeah, their bidding. Sure. Who Absolutely. Functioned everyone as everyone participated. Right. They were the only ones there. Right. But it's no different. I mean, throughout the Old Testament, what happened to all the prophets? Sure. They were either persecuted and or killed. Sure. And uh, that he's claimed to be some sort of exception is absurd. Right. This is certainly underlined in the... Uh... This is great. He goes right down the hill, Simon goes right down, and they and, uh, you see Mary Magdalene and Mary and John coming right up. I'm sorry, Father, go ahead. That's right. I was going to say how this is the mutual culpability of all of us is certainly shown in the, uh, the way the Pieta is done in this too, where Mary looks right out at all of us after the crucifixion and says, mm -hmm. what was your part in this? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's another one of those magnificent moments of locking of the eyes between the mother and the son. He hasn't gotten up yet, but by looking at her, in fact, the, the interesting, she kneels, she gets down, and obviously in an attitude of prayer and praying for him, and, and that enables him to get up. Ugh. The one listening to the film will frequently hear the Aramaic word kum, which means to get up. And this, mm -hmm. of course, echoes the, uh, it has all sorts of theological meaning. When Jesus cures the little girl, Talitha Kumi, little girl, I say, get up. Mm -hmm. But of course, it also is a, an echo of the passion and resurrection. 
Same in the Greek, the word anastasis. Yes. I have a, one of my ten children's name, Anastasia. It means resurrection. It's, it's, it's a standing up again, anastasis. Hmm. We've had the washing of the hands in the Paschal ritual, <laughs> and now we've got... The distribution of the bread. The bread, yes. And the juxtaposition of these two things. Yeah. Taking the, the, the cloth off of the bread and now stripping the garments off of the one who said in John 6, I am the bread of life. Mm -hmm. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want everlasting life. Which was another one of those Bible verses that I, as a Protestant, really wanted to just reduce to a mere figurative language until I really had to wrestle with the implications of what Jesus is saying there in John 6 and realizing, you know, who am I? What authority do I have to, to turn this into a figure of speech when Jesus, all the indications are he meant this literally. Of, of all the, the New Testament, John 6 is about the hardest to escape, isn't it? Yep. Mm. Well, you got the idea of transubstantiation staring you right in the face, right? Yeah. Because clearly all, all of his audience took him literally. They said, how yes. can this man give us his flesh to eat? And they left him for that reason. He doesn't run after them saying, wait, wait, you misunderstood. I was just using a nice little metaphor, a little bit of poetry. They would have said, oh, that, well, that's fine. We'll come back. We love simile and metaphor and poetry. The Psalms are full of it. But you know, they understood him literally, and he let them go because that was the true understanding. And that's certainly how the apostles took it. And, uh, I mean, Paul is very clear about that in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. He says that the communion is a communion in the body and blood of Christ, not in something that is a symbol of his body and blood or represents. In other words, the Bible never says that this symbolizes or this signifies my body. This is, this, this is a representation of my blood. That's something that I, as a Protestant minister, had to, you know, impose on it. And I realized that the Bible didn't, didn't uh, warrant that. I think the flashbacks in this film uh, are are really excellent in pulling that together, that the, mm -hmm. that the Eucharist embodies the passion of Christ. And of course, in the words of institution, in the anaphora, that's very much uh, spelled out, but how often do we pay attention to it? Mm. Calling to mind the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus in the very act of consecration. And this is where, you know, he says, this is really the message of, of the, the passion what love is, giving oneself, giving oneself. Mel was tempted to have a postscript on the film that said, love one another as I have loved you. Yeah, which is the, the ultimate message of Christianity, as I have loved you. And that nailing of, of the hands is a real symbol of what sin is. It's, it's inhibiting God from, from letting him love us. I'm glad you put this verse in here. You know that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. Because that just goes, again, that's something that people need to hear in an age in which, you know, we're all tempted to follow the path of political correctness and say that, you know, every religion is equally valid and, and salvific and it's it's imp this is the part of the gospel that goes against the grain of that and yet it needs to be proclaimed and i'm so glad that you had that in there the truth is a very rich concept in the hebrew thinking too it's not just something that happens in your mind the truth also involves a love affair not just an intellectual conviction it's something with the heart as well as the mind same thing with the idea of faith in the uh, scriptures that faith is not just an intellectual assent to a proposition, but it's the idea of being faithful, you know, being sure. faithful to the covenant. In John's gospel, he never uses the word faith, he uses the verb mm -hmm. to believe into, mm -hmm. which implies... Entering into a union with that 
person who's the object of the Incredible. Form. Exactly. To have him say that line at that moment. Because, you know, in the Gospels, he says it from the cross, which and he does it later. He does it here. He purposely repeats it. He repeats it. Exactly. To he make it very clear. Whether it's, your, it's physical attack or it's just a spiritual attack, he's always, he wants the forgiveness, mercy. Which and it, and this film is not about blaming anyone. No, it's, not, it's just the opposite. The exactly. whole point, the whole point is, is the mercy, which is an expression of love in a fallen world. And even when he's suffering that much, he's able. And you see how she's suffering in the exact same way. Yes, her, her facial uh, yeah. thing is, is mimicking exactly in, in what sync he's doing. with the... And you know, so therefore, that she's thinking the same thing. Forgive them, Father, forgive them. This is a fantastic image, too, her grabbing oh, yeah. up the That the was earth. her own idea, I think, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, Maya but it works so idea. great. I, mean. I think every single one of the seven words of our Lord from the cross make it into this film. Yeah. That's the first one. Father, forgive me, they know not what they do. What's interesting is that Matthew and Mark only give us one of the words of our Lord from the cross, the, the words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They both mention that one, and, they, and, and those two gospel writers mention none of the other ones. We get three more from St. Luke that are found only in St. Luke, and then three more from St. John that are, again, only found in St. John. And yes. it's only by putting all of them together that we get what we call, quote, the seven last words of our Lord from the cross. And, and they do not mention, Luke and John do not mention the one that Matthew and Mark do. So it's just another reminder that God gives us many witnesses. By bringing in all their separate perspectives, we get the full... Picture. 360 degree. Yeah. Well, that's it. People say the Gospels differ. Well, they do. But what they're really doing is completing one another. Right. Were you going to comment on this? How the when the cross was turned over, he's not face down? Well, that's from in the Maria Agreda. Mm -hmm. Apparently, this took place in her vision. That's it was just simply not allowed by God that his face should even touch the ground. So you're seeing a kind of supernatural occurrence there. Mm hmm. She gets more strength now. She's reminded, okay, he is in charge. This is part of the plan. Look, yeah. she has peace again. And I yeah. needed that as an audience member, in a sense. Kabilule, wa'okulu, tenau kishmi. This does such a wonderful job of, of uh, interlinking the passion with, oh, the, yeah. with sacramental life. Because you yeah. see him lifting up the bread, yeah. and you see John at the Last Supper lifting his eyes, and here the bread of life is being lifted up on the cross, the elevation of the true host. And the penny just dropped for him. Yeah, yeah. He realizes, I've seen this before. This is, de this is the most profound deja vu I've ever experienced in my life, John is saying. And, of course, they're all looking up. Those who have faith, Mary Magdalene, the mother of Jesus, are looking up because they see here the fulfillment of that of the Eucharist. I mean, just her letting go of the earth here is just... Mm -hmm. John Debney's music for this is extraordinary also. He did a great job. It's almost a, a, another step in her relinquishing her son, just to let go of all that Everything. earth. And of course, the, the word for earth in Hebrew, Adama, 
is the word from which Adam comes. Mm-hmm. So he's the man of the earth, the man on the ground. So mm-hmm. there's there's parallels. God himself puns on that in Genesis 3, mm-hmm. that you came from the Adamah, and so you're named Adam, and you'll have to return to the Adamah. And Christ is, again, the second Adam. So here he is being lifted up above the earth. He said in John's Gospel, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all manner of people to myself. But Mary, in giving up her son, gives up the, symbolically lets the earth drop back down out of her hands. I always think about the Moses parallel here, where he lifted up the serpent and anyone sure. looked on it was saved. And sure, which John comments on in John 3. There's also a very old tradition in the church that the place of the crucifixion is the place of the burial of Adam. Yes. Yeah. That's why it's called Golgotha, the place of the skull. Because His head was there, yeah? I'm glad you had this, which is given for you and for many, mm. for the forgiveness of sins. Sure. Because I know a lot of people today don't, don't hear it quite that way. So no. it's, it's a good uh, refresher on what the Bible actually does say. Because all the Bibles, of course, have the words for you and for many. Every Bible on the face of the earth, Catholic, Protestant, even the Jehovah's Witness New World Translation says that. Yes. Well, uh, so it's, it's, it's uh, of course, his, so thank his, you. Sacrifice, his <laughs> sacrifice was sufficient for to all. save all. Right. But the fact is that it's not not everybody's going to cooperate with that. Right. It's and he would have reflected that yep. in the word for many. He knew who would be saved and who wouldn't. Thank you for that catechism. That's important. <laughs> Some have asked why you had various items hanging from the... Uh, well, he cross. says they nailed that symbolic uh, thief cup. Yeah. He still stole a cup or something. It was just, he's a thief. The other has got a bag of money around his neck. Yeah. Although it's and the king neat. has a crown on. Yeah. You know. Although it's kind of neat that, that Dismas has that bag of money because it almost ends up looking like a brown, big brown scapula. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, it does. It's odd, isn't it? No, everyone's, everyone's wearing their crime. Yeah. It's the king and the thieves. Yeah. This is right. This scene is right from the uh, gospel. Right from the gospel. Asking for proof. Right at the cross itself, yeah. When the cross itself is the proof mm. that he loves, that he's loved, that he loves to the end, you know, it's a different concept of the Messiah. This was good to put this in that, you know, Jesus has love for this man, Caiaphas, who's turning his back on him and walking away, that he still wills his, positively wills his salvation, Mm. that even he is not outside the circle of his love. It's the first canonization. Yep. And it's interesting that, I mean, you'll be with me in paradise. Paradise, again, is that word borrowed from the Persian, meaning an enclosed garden. The movie begins in a garden. Our sins have 
turned this world from being the paradise it was before to no longer paradise, and yet the movie's going to end up in paradise again. I mean, because of the work that Christ's doing here on the cross, we're going to be able to get back in the garden. A lot of people found this offensive, but there's a passage in the Old Testament that says that the eye that mocks, you know, a father is, is pecked out by the ravens of the valley. So I think there's some fulfillment of, again, biblical, a biblical principle here, because well, he, he, did, he mocks it at Jesus rather than allowing his heart to be, you know, made contrite the way Dismas does. Even historically, we know from several sources that the... Birds would come and feed on these guys. Uh, yeah, sure. people who were crucified, so... Yeah. And the eye, eye is particularly probably oh, yeah. succulent to them. Cause it's nice oh, no, they go for the eyes first, yeah. yeah. Well, you see that in Hitchcock's The Birds, too. Yeah. <laughs> you were talking earlier, Father, about this being in Hebrew tradition, the, uh, the site of Adam's burial. And uh, many church fathers talk about how as the blood of Christ trickled down the cross, which you just see there, it was actually going down into the limbus patrum, the limbo of the fathers, and kind of being the key that opens up, you know, the prison they're in and, and, and setting them free so that when Christ ascends into heaven, he can take those prisoners of war liberated to their final destination. And again, I mentioned earlier Chimabue's famous painting of the crucifixion where he does have the blood that flows from the body to the frame, and then from the frame it goes into the ground. Mm. Yes, and then land, and goes to the skull, yeah? It goes to the skull, exactly. Yep. Yep. That's why a lot of medieval crucifixes actually have a at the very at the base bottom, yeah. at the bottom to show that it's the second Adam dying above the remnant of the first Adam to make his redemption possible. A lot of that Hebrew tradition, by the way, is brought out. There's a great book that I think Tan Books has kept in print called How Christ Said the First Mass by Father James Mayer, M-E-A-G-H-E-R. And it goes into a lot of the symbolism of the Last Supper, the First Mass, the, uh, the, the blood coming down the cross, Adam's skull being down there, the other in Abraham's bosom where paradise was, awaiting their liberation from, by the Messiah. I'm there every year in the, the, that awesome place in the Holy Sepulcher, and I must say I, I find it an extraordinarily moving experience to be able to actually reach into the, the spot and to touch the stone below. she kisses his feet and comes back with the blood yes. upon her lips, yeah. which, which stays there. The Marian theme of this film and the Eucharistic theme are so beautifully interwoven that a, a devotion to Mary and devotion to the Eucharist really involve each other. They're, they're inextricably intertwined. But it's all the church which will receive his blood in Holy Communion through the years, and he's thirsting. What he's really thirsting for, I think, is for people to do what she did, to come to him, to take his blood, to love him. They give him a drink. He turns it down. Yeah, he won't That's take not it. the thirst that no. he, was, he was no. mentioning. It was a spiritual thirst. flesh of my flesh, heart of my heart. I isn't, mean, isn't that from Genesis? Yeah, but because when Adam sees Eve, when she is made from his side, he says, this yeah. is at last flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. And, and 
St. Paul says in Ephesians 5 that the marriage between Adam and Eve is reflects the marriage between Christ and his church. And Mary is the church in miniature. She is the perfect, that immaculate bride without any spot, wrinkle, or blemish. And so he sees in her what his sacrificial death makes possible for, for those that will unite themselves to him the way she did. And here's that part we were commenting on earlier where he's saying to John, take, you know, take her as your mother. But again, through John, the beloved disciple, saying it to all of us. people are intrigued by this prayer because he says you know why have you abandoned me but it's actually another psalm it's another psalm but i think it has to be taken seriously that he is feeling the despair not the despair but the the utter brokenness that human beings feel when they're yeah, he when embraced they're, as paul says all things even unto death on the cross yeah, everything he was made sin you're right you're right and yet first half of that psalm expresses that that pain but in the end, it comes back to an act of hope. It comes back to hope, indeed. So that God will not, in the end, abandon him. So we've just seen all three of the words from the cross that John narrates. I thirst, it is finished, it is consummated, which probably refers back to the Passover itself because the fourth cup is the cup of consummation. And the Passover is being finally, you know, completed here. And then into your hands I commit my spirit. And, and it's funny that you mention that because this last line has been on the lips of how many Christians when they've died? Yeah. Into your hands I commend my spirit. I love this bird's eye, I suppose we should say God's eye view of the whole thing, and then you see it's refracted through this tear. God's tear, the first drop of the storm that's coming. The root of the word that he uses for it is finished is the same word for peace, same word as in shalom and salam. Oh, in the Aramaic you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Earthquake. It's a new creation. It's the new creation? order. The new order, everything. He's made Spirit all things new. The Holy Spirit is there, the possibility that we can love as much as Christ did in the way that Christ did and forgive our enemies. Just as in the uh, the symbolism in the book of Genesis that preceding the new uh, creation is tohu avohu, is, is earth being confused and so the on. Chaos, right? Now the new creation is also marked by uh, the earthquake, yeah. by the earthquake and a rattling of the old order as something wonderful and new is breaking forth. Yes, it's almost like a birth. Of, but this is biblical. I mean, the, in the Bible, it talks about earthquake oh. and the sky and earthquake and darkness and, and darkness. And this, the tearing of the veil in the temple, the veil which separated God from people, from men. Right. And now it's torn. Christ has reunited. Jesus Christ has reunited God and men. God and people are together. God is accessible now in the yes, flesh and in the spirit. Right. right. Because they didn't want the bodies defiling the Passover. 
And of course, when they come to our Lord's body, he doesn't gone. have to do it. Yeah. And again, he looks at Mary as though almost to say apologize or almost even ask permission. This is so wonderful the way they're just bathed in the blood and the water flowing from the side of our Lord that St. John makes such theological significance oh, yeah. of. He comments on in his first epistle again, he says, you know, there were three that bear witness on earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are all one. They're all saying the same thing. That from Christ's side flows the water and the blood representing the two primary sacraments, baptism and the Eucharist, and of course, by implication, the whole sevenfold sacramental stream that flows from the side of the Savior. So much uh, reminiscent of uh, Thomas Aquinas's hymns. Mm. He would have loved this movie. Mm. <laughs> Here he's crying, I guess, because he's seen the, the the weight of the Holy of Holies exposed by the tearing the of the yeah. temple veil. We should point out too that earthquakes in the Bible are always. Oh, this is a great shot here. And vanquish, yeah. Yeah. He finally realizes what's happened. I was duped. Ah, <laughs> oh, this is so beautiful. This is an incredibly powerful Pieta. It's mm. Joseph of Arimathea. Mm. And you notice that, that, that there, Mary and Jesus are surrounded by a Roman soldier, Jewish leader, Joseph of Arimathea, I think, is there. Yes. Uh, youngest disciple, John, and Mary Magdalene, you know, the, the repentant sinner. So you have all of humanity surrounding Mary and Jesus and looking and gazing on this, on our Lord and on Mary, and then she looks out and includes us in that as well when she looks out. And demands a, a, a reaction response, on our yeah, part. Yeah. And you see the instruments of torture, which are really the instruments of glory. And there she goes. She, she looks right at the camera, which you rarely see. I was uh, with some of the groups that when we had a, uh, the director's cut of showing it to various groups. And many groups, Christian groups, that do not have much on Mary in their tradition all commented that now they realize yeah. why Mary belongs in the tradition. Of course, she's there. It's Mary's been. role in, in, the, in the passion, death, and the redemption. Again, Benedict Fitzgerald, the, the co-screenwriter, had an interesting comment on this. I asked him what he thought she was saying with that look, and he said, I think she's saying, don't forget. Oh, that's nice. Don't forget. And then darkness here, which almost kind of you know, fakes Last the too long. to think, yeah. to think, hey, it's over. And they're starting yeah. to get up, maybe, you know, wait a minute. No, now there's can't. light coming back into the darkness, the light of Easter Sunday. And all those Joanine themes of light versus darkness that Father's been talking about that we see at the beginning of the movie, again, the, the struggle between the light, the moonlight trying to pierce through the clouds and the dark clouds. And now we see this interplay of light and shadow here. So the movie really comes around full circle. 
And of course, it, it ends in a garden the way it began, because it begins with the agony in the garden, and we know from John's Gospel that this tomb was in a garden. John specifically makes that point, and I think he does so deliberately. He sees the importance of the garden imagery. He says, Joseph Arimathea put it in a tomb, and it was this tomb was located in a garden. In fact, when Mary Magdalene meets Jesus, as John records it in John 20, she's, she thinks he's the gardener when she sees him until she recognizes who he is when he calls her by name. So he is the gardener. I mean, he's the new Adam again. Adam is the gardener of the first garden in Genesis 2 and 3, and Jesus is the new Adam, which Paul explicitly says Adam is a type of Christ in Romans 5.14. He uses the very word type, a foreshadowing. I love that scar in his hand there. Linens are an interesting little light motif that occurs so often in this film, too. Yeah. Very, they're always very symbolic. Yeah. And the way those collapsed, I thought, was magnificent, yeah. the way you just, you just see them collapsing. In fact, I can't remember which evangelist it is, mentions that the word he uses to describe how, oh, it's John. It's St. John. John, it is, yeah. John, when John says that when Peter looks in the tomb, and John, he says, when he looked in the tomb, he saw the winding sheet was was collapsed. In other words, it was collapsed. Christ didn't have to extricate himself from it by unwrapping himself, the way yeah. he says, by contrast with, with Lazarus. When there are other resurrections in the Bible earlier, there are just really resurrections to the mortal life that we all still live now. This is a resurrection of a whole new order. He doesn't have to be physically unwound. He just can go right through uh, with his resurrection body, the, uh, the winding sheet. I think of the, the beautiful Easter hymn of Victime Pascale Laudes that also lays heavy emphasis on the linens. Monica Bellucci said that she felt compelled to be in this film once she had the offer to do it. And uh, when I first met her, it was over dinner in, uh, in Matera in Italy. She asked the question more than once. She says, why should Jesus make a difference to me? She hmm. says, I know that somehow now he does, but I don't know the answer to that question. She repeated that about a year later, too. From <laughs> She was in Los Angeles for her, uh, a publicity. That's just the perfect question that this film provokes. Hmm. Why should Jesus make a difference to me? I love her face in this film. I thought she had a really beautiful spiritual face. Almost mm. the kind of face you expect Mary, the mother of our Lord, to have. So uh, so she certainly brought something very very spiritual presence to the, 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 the knot of the Mary and Mary Magdalene and John at the foot of the cross and throughout. No, hardly a word spoken, and she was really present there, you know. I think of Maya Morgenstern. How many ways can you express sadness? Oh, yeah. She managed hundreds of different ways. Yeah. And it was really juxtaposition between the performances, really. The three of them had to go through their own experience in witnessing this. You'd have to have them breaking down and being strong at different times and supporting each other. It was quite difficult to maintain that level. So that you had to find ways to drop back and find different ways of expressing it, which we all explored, and they, they came through. Maya had many things that she herself suggested, didn't she? Didn't, oh, yeah. Time. No, no, she's very creative and, and really participated with full gusto. 
you know, just the thing where she picks up the earth. Yes, that was hers. And, oh, yeah. No, that was, and I just saw that and I went, thank you, because I kind of got it right away. Also for the, um, the opening lines from the Seder that she hmm. introduced, I thought it was just beautiful. I remember, too, during the filming of the, uh, in the carpenter shop when she calls Jesus in to eat, that she had several ideas there that ended up being incorporated in the final. Sure. No, she's very giving. One thing I've never understood is the critics of the film have complained that the movie is too upsetting. Well, that's the very purpose of the movie, to shake us out of our complacency. We tend to think about these things as abstractions. We don't feel the impact of them the way, you know, Mel wanted us to by making this movie. And so to walk out of the movie saying, I was upset, I was distraught, I was, you know, shaken by this, I was devastated, emotionally devastated. How is that a criticism? That is, in fact, I think, from one sense, the greatest compliment that could be paid because the film achieved its objective, which was to shake them up and to make them realize you cannot look at life from your comfort zone and and realize that life is only possible and eternal life is only possible if you commit yourself to this one who underwent this suffering and death on your behalf. For every one of these people, when I see their names, I think of what a profound spiritual experience it was for them throughout the filming of the film. Nobody came away neutral. I remember the, in the post-production that people in the studio, when everything was finished, said that you know normally when a film is finished, you never want to see each other again. But because of this film, everybody wanted to keep in contact, and so far I think that's pretty much happened, hasn't hmm. it, Mal? Absolutely, yeah. It's, They've all become tight friends. Yeah. Hmm. It was a bonding experience for them. Hmm. The tremendous humanity of this uh, of this film is something that I found uh, I could identify with very very readily. Yeah, it's and not a uh, distant god. It's not no. a distant religious abstraction. Precisely. I know it brought into focus my own you know my own life, my own vocation as a as a priest. Brought it into focus. It's very simple. We have to be like that. We yeah. have to love like that. Yeah. To give ourselves to the end and love like that. See Wolfgang Amadeus there as one of the music. Oh, poets. Wolfie! Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, give, give him a nod. What the heck? Yeah. yeah, we know Wolfie. You know he was a good guy. <laughs> it's always edifying, enlightening, and strengthening to see the film again, personally. Yes, even for the forty-third time. <laughs> I lost track. I don't know how many times I've seen it. <laughs> hey, for two hours, I think. We only just scratched the surface, really, theologically. You could go back and do it all again, and you could have a whole other deeper layer. I guess that's it, That's it, Cesar.